0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go find yourself something awesome to listen to today. Sign up for a free trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens, and better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Supplemental, Alice Perez, the Lady of the Sun. Women in the Middle Ages were meant to only have sex with one man. They were supposed to stay celibate until their wedding night, then exclusively sleep with him until one of them died. If she survived him, then she could remarry and sleep with the new husband, of course, or if they obtained an annulment. But you get the picture. For women, the only acceptable form of sex, at least in the eyes of our main sources, who are almost exclusively celibate old men, was within marriage. Now, of course, many women did not follow these rules at all, and they were usually branded as harlots and jezebels. Nobody ever looked favourably on a cheating woman. Now, men, on the other hand, well, they were also supposed to follow the same rules, but of course they didn't either. But the societal penalties for men sleeping around outside of marriage were basically nil. You had to be a fairly flagrant philanderer for anyone to care much, and even then you could probably still get away with it. The key, of course, was discretion, and to treat the woman that you slept with, and any children you might have, well. Nigh on, every single king that we have talked about so far has had affairs before and during marriage. Henry I, if you recall, holds the illegitimate child record with 30, but he was not alone at all. So who were these royal mistresses? Well, they came from all parts of the social strata, from the lowest-born present prostitutes to even queens in the case of Henry the Second, who of course had an infamous affair with Eleanor of Aquitaine before marrying her. I haven't talked much about royal mistresses so far, though, because we know very little about most of them, and frankly they aren't very important to our story. Queens were really delighted that their husbands were sleeping around with other women, but it was just one of those things that came with the territory. Indeed, the only mistress that I have talked about in any detail so far was Rosamond Clifford, the famed blonde beauty whose supposed affair with Henry the Second is said to have driven Eleanor of Aquitaine to have her gruesomely murdered. Now, I considered doing a supplemental on her, but the problem is that we know very little about her, so I just put her story in the episode. Alice Perez, on the other hand, we do know a little about, and her story is far too interesting to just shove into the episode about Philip of Hainaut, so I thought I'd do this little supplemental. So, who was she? Well, this is all shrouded in mystery. The first book that I picked up while researching this supplemental was by F. George K., and he starts the book by saying this, No one knows for certain when or where she was born or where her remains are buried. Her parentage is a matter of conjecture. The reason that she was invited to join the royal household remain a mystery. The number of children she had or who the father was is obscure. So, yeah, we don't know an awful lot. But what do we know about her? Well, she is often associated with being from Henny in Essex and tradition states that she came from relatively low birth. Of course we don't have a reliable birth date, but it is estimated to be in the late 1340s, around the time when the Black Death was sweeping across Europe. It is next believed that she married a trader called Janin Perez, but he died possibly of the plague early in their marriage. This meant though that she gained some wealth and status as a middle class woman. Really, though, the first time that she meaningfully turns up in the historical record is when she became lady-in-waiting to the Queen of England, Philippa of Hainaut, in 1363. Now, Philippa at this time was 54, and entering the last years of her life. I skipped over this period a little in the last episode, but she spent most of her last remaining years in quite some pain with a disease that modern historians have diagnosed as dropsy. Now, to be a lady-in-waiting for a sitting queen was a high honour, and it seems that she saw in Alice a protégé, a replacement daughter for a woman whose last remaining unmarried daughter, the troublesome Isabella, had only just flown the coop. She seems to have made quite an impression on both the king and queen, as not long after she joined the household, she was granted a gift of around 400 gallons of Gascon wine annually, which is, you know, a hell of a lot of wine. It is believed that she began her affair with the king soon after entering Philippa's service, or possibly even before, and quickly bore him three children, John, Joan and Jane. Now up until this point, Edward seems to have not taken mistresses, or at least very few, and certainly there is no suggestion that he had any illegitimate children before. Perhaps it was Philippa's illness that began to draw his eyes towards other women, or maybe Alice was just one in a long line of affairs, this just being the most infamous. Even though he now had bastard children, the affair was kept under wraps while Philippa was alive. The Queen was beloved by all, tarnishing her name with an affair would not do at all. This all changed, however, after the Queen died in 1369. The Queen did not forget Alice in her will, granting her, quote, ten marks yearly at Easter and Michaelmas. Though she was not especially singled out, her other ladies-in-waiting got similar gifts. After the Queen's death, Edward and Alice became less cautious about keeping their affair a secret, and for the most part, no one particularly cared about it on principle. There may have been quite a considerable age gap, she was in her teens, he was in his fifties, but this was not unusual, and let's not forget that Edward was a very popular king. He could get away with things that other kings could not. He had by now, though, mostly handed over control of the day-to-day aspects of the kingdom to a combination of his sons and subordinates, with William Wickham in particular keeping the government of England ticking over, while his son the Black Prince took care of the fighting in France. In 1369, the war in France ignited, but this conflict was not destined to go as well for England as the previous war had gone. The Black Prince by now had contracted the illness that would ail him until his death, and it was now John of Gaunt who led the military effort, but he did not do a great job of it, and most of the territory in northern France that had been won after Crecy was lost. This was a time of great frustration for the king, and it is very probable that Alice was his closest confidant at this time, and certainly he was growing ever more and more emotionally dependent upon her. This was something that she and men close to Edward would start to use their mutual gain. She began to build a close network of friends, most notably William Natimer and John Neville, who Alice managed to place as the royal chamberlain and steward of the royal household, respectively. These were two intimate positions around the king, and it meant that Alice and her allies could be sure that they controlled access to him. They were also fabulously corrupt. Indeed, it is not unfair to compare this cabal to the days of Gaveston and Dispenser, when a weak king became dependent on his lover and their allies. It is widely believed that Edward in the final decade of his life was, uh, to put it bluntly, losing it. His mental faculties were dwindling, and so it is unsurprising that he depended upon those whom he felt he could trust. The problem is that a lot of his friends were dead, an unfortunate byproduct of having led a long life. This meant that he was now depending a lot on young and ambitious men. And Alice. And they only really cared about enriching themselves. Well, maybe that's a little unfair as far as Alice is concerned. She was loyal to the king to a point but she was also loyal to her own interests. It is in this period that any attempt to hide the influence that Alice had over Edward just went away. In 1373, he made the most ostentatious declaration of his feelings towards her by giving Philippa's jewellery to her, essentially anointing her as the successor to his wife, though of course they could not marry due to her low birth. Now on this occasion, I do not believe that these jewels were demanded by Alice. If they had, then she would have handled it a lot more discreetly. Instead, it was done in front of the whole court, and this was not a popular move. Like I said, the Queen had been very popular, and this all seemed a little grubby and immoral. Now this is when historians and contemporary writers like Thomas Walsingham start to stick the knife into Alice. Here is what Walsingham has to say about her. she was a shameless, impudent harlot, and of low birth; for she was the daughter of a thatcher from the town of Henny, elevated by fortune. She was not attractive or beautiful, but knew how to compensate for these defects with the seductiveness of her voice. Blind fortune elevated this woman to such heights and promoted her to a greater intimacy with the king than was proper, since she had been the maid-servant and mistress of a man of Lombardy, and accustomed to carry water on her own shoulders from the mill stream for the everyday needs of that household. And while the Queen was still alive, the King loved this woman more than he loved the Queen. Now this, for me, is rather unfair. I'm with the historian Ian Mortimer, who says in his book The Perfect King, quote, "'No one, contemporary or historically, has a good word to say about Alice.' She may have been the most self-seeking and corrupt person at Edward's court, but that does not mean that we should not at least try to understand her situation. She had met the king when relatively young, and perhaps a little naive. Certainly, she would have been powerless to prevent his advances towards her when she was serving Philippa. After Alice gave birth, she was forever closely linked to Edward, and after Philippa's death, she was apparently his sole bedmate. In short, he needed her, and who was she to deny him the king? She must have felt enormously flattered and privileged to have been raised up as the king's recognised companion above the wives of knights, barons and earls. He goes on to argue that everything that Alice was about to do was all because of the precariousness of her position. The king was clearly ailing in body and mind, and once he was dead, then all the positions she had gained would be lost. She had not family name or wealth to fall back on, and so she had to plunder the kingdom for whatever she could, while she could. Now, I think he goes a little too far here in characterising Alice as this sort of unassuming girl thrust into the limelight, but I don't think that she was some sort of nouveau dispenser. She had not spent years seducing and then controlling the king. He fell for her, and she took advantage. And once she had her fingers in the trough, she was not about to pull them out. It was, of course, not just her fingers in the trough. Her friend, and possibly already her husband, William Windsor, had been under investigation after his rule as lieutenant of Ireland, had been marred by some pretty spectacular corruption, extortion, the works really, but he was cleared in court after the intervention of Alice, and then she even managed to persuade the king to re-establish him as lieutenant against the wishes of the Irish nobles. Another noble taking advantage of the king was Latimer, who had complete control over who did or did not see the king. Any petitioner seeking royal justice from the noblest noble to the monkiest monk had to go.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig.
1: Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
0: Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
1: Through him, and of course, his assistance always had its little price in gold or favors. By 1375, he even stopped asking the king what he thought. He just started issuing decrees on his own authority. While all this was going on, Alice was accruing property at a terrific pace. Her little empire of manors and castles stretched across 17 counties. Now, this wasn't like when Isabella or Despenser accrued property. She wasn't gaining them via blackmail or force. She was doing it much more cleverly than that. Some, she gained, were transferred from the royal possession, with her using her position of the influence with the king to achieve it. She got others at bargain prices in exchange for influence. She was essentially treating England like a mafia crime family. Last and the others may have been the ones controlling the kingdom's wealth, but she held the heart of the king. Her influence was the most valuable to any would-be petitioner, and she sold that influence dearly. She not only lived like a queen in all her estates, she also dressed like one. Rich with the income from her lands and gifts from her lover boy, Alice indulged her decadent streak on a variety of hugely expensive clothes and furniture. Her influence with the king was so well known, news of it even reached the pope, who, when petitioning England to release his brother, who was held by one of Edward's vassals, addressed it to, quote, the Prince of England, John of Gaunt, and Alice Perez. She had reached a position of status in the minds of foreigners that not many queens even get to, let alone a mistress. She was seen to have a degree of influence that no one else can match, and that alone makes her a very impressive woman. The high point of her career came in 1374. At the end of Lent, the king arranged for a tournament to be held in her honour at Smithfield on the outskirts of London. This was a big deal. These tournaments were big international events, comparable to a sort of proto-Olympics, where knights from across Europe would compete in various martial events, from jousting to the melee. On the first day of the tournament, the king and Alice emerged from their quarters in the tower, and there formed a procession to take everyone down to the tournament. And at the centre of it all was Alice, in a chariot no less, apparently looking so resplendent that she got the nickname of Lady of the Sun. Now let's not forget that these tournaments were highly ritual occasions, and steeped in chivalric ceremony. The king was the champion of course, obviously since he was the king. By his side should be his bride, but of course he had none. So by placing Alice at his side, he was in effect saying that she was as good as a queen. The fact that these ceremonies were so steeped in the ideas of chivalry and courtly love is obvious in the literature of the time, and it is interesting to note that allusions to Alice appear in the two greatest works of the age. The first is Piers Plowman, which amongst other things is a vicious social satire, and it contains a description of a Lady Mead, a concubine of the king whom Plowman fairly despises, but it's clear that Plowman had Alice as the Lady of the Sun in mind when he wrote this, quote, I looked on my left side, as the lady taught me, and was wary of a woman, worthily clothed, with fringes of fur, the finest on earth, crowned with a crown, the king hath no better, Feetingly her fingers were, framed with gold wire, and thereon red rubies, as red as any coal, and diamonds of dearest price, and two kinds of sapphires, orientals and beryls, poison-banes to destroy. Her robe was full rich, of red scarlet dyed, with ribbons of red gold, and of richest stones. Her array me ravished, such riches saw I never. I had wonder what she was, and whose wife she were. What is this woman, quoth I, so worthily attired? That is me, I the maid, quoth she, hath vexed me full oft, and lied of my lover that loyalty is called, and slandered him to lords that have to guard laws. In the Pope's palace, familiar as myself, though truth would not so, for she is a bastard. The other description of her is in Geoffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales in The Wife of Bath. Now, of course, I'm not going to read The Wife of Bath in full because it's super long, But to summarise, it's the story of an Arthurian knight who, as punishment for rape, was sent by Queen Guinevere to find out what exactly it was that women wanted in marriage. After much searching, he comes across an old hag who says that the answer to his question was dominance over their man. In return, he promises to grant her anything she chooses. What she chooses is to be married to the knight, which she is forced to do. On their wedding night, he initially refuses to consummate the marriage, so she gives him a choice. Either she can be ugly but good, or he can have her pretty but unfaithful. He decides to let her choose, and of course she chooses to be young and carefree. But because the knight's answer gave the woman what she wanted, sovereignty over her own fate, she became the perfect middle ground, hot and obedient. Yay! Now we don't know for sure that the character of the wife of Bath was based on Alice Perez, but there are some good reasons why. The first is the description of her as being an old hag, but beautiful once in the bedroom. Most descriptions of Alice have her as not being blessed in the looks department, so this would fit that. Next is the fact that she actually comes off fairly well in the story, at least in the end. Alice and Shaw were good friends, and so this is in many ways a slightly roguish tribute to her. She is also a social climber. She started as a seamstress and used marriage as a social ladder. She is a lover of fine clothes, much like Alice was, and has little issue with extramarital sex. Also, she is called Alison, which is, you know, pretty close to Alice. Like I said, this was the zenith of Alice's life, because storm clouds were on the horizon in the shape of the good Parliament. Edward had not called a Parliament for a couple of years, knowing full well that the reign of Alice and her acolytes was very unpopular, and any Parliament called would likely stir up trouble. However, he needed money, and the only legitimate way for an English king to raise funds was through Parliament. Therefore, he was forced to call one in 1376. This parliament was virulently hostile to Alice, and quickly they squared up for a fight. They first went after the small fish, lower-level officials caught red-handed being corrupt, but eventually they got to Alice, against whom they threw every charge they could think of, though interestingly they did not go after her much on moral matters, I guess because taking her on for an affair with the king would implicate the king himself, and that would not be a prudent course of action. What they did accuse her of, though, was witchcraft, of seducing the king and placing him under her control thanks to evil spells. Thomas Walsingham, who really, really hated Alice, had this to say. He did not care too much about the witchcraft charge. He was too focused on how outrageous it was that a woman, a woman no less, was illegally wielding so much power. Quote, the parliamentary knights complained bitterly about one Alice Paris, a wanton woman who was all too familiar with Edward III. They accused her of numerous misdeeds performed by her and her friends in the realm. She far overstepped the bounds of feminine conduct, forgetful of her sex and her weakness, now besieging the king's justices, now stationing herself among the doctors in the ecclesiastical courts, she did not fear to plead in defence of her cause and even to make illegal demands. As a result of the scandal and great shame which this brought on King Edward, not only in this kingdom but also in foreign lands, the knight sought her banishment from his side. This charge that he talks about, that of influencing judges, was the crux of the legal case against Alice, and it was that that the MPs were mostly pushing. I mean, there is no doubt that Alice was corrupt and had committed these crimes. Everything else was just because they didn't like her. You may well ask why Edward was not around to defend his mistress. Well, he was a little distracted because a tragedy was unfolding his son and heir the black prince was very ill and in fact died while parliament was in session it was then that the speaker of the house the leader of the anti alice faction revealed to the king that she had secretly married william windsor devastated and broken the king agreed to the judgment of parliament alice was to be banished orsingham gleefully relates the judgment in his chronicle For as much as complaint is made to the king that some women have pursued diverse business and quarrels in the courts of the king, the king forbids that, from henceforth, any woman shall do so, and in especial Alice Perez, on pain of as much as the said Alice may forfeit, and of being banished out of the kingdom. Now that translation of the Chronicle is not in an English that I recognise, but essentially, for the crime of being a woman influencing a judge, she has to pay a massive fine and was henceforth banished. The Good Parliament was the most important parliament ever called thus far, and would not be surpassed in terms of the power it carried and the influence it held until the time of Oliver Cromwell. To take down Alice, the nobles of England had essentially laid the foundation for English democracy, which is a really extraordinary by-product of this shabby dealing. Her banishment did not last for long. In 1377, it was clear that the old king was dying, and he requested that Alice be permitted to come to his bedside. Even then, Alice was still trying to influence the king, persuading him to issue a pardon to one of her acolytes, Richard Lyons. When he died, Alice was by his side, and he gave her one of his rings, perhaps as a final token of affection. Walsingham, of course, accuses her of stealing it, but I think we can safely ignore that. Alice would go on to live until 1400, but with the king dead, her protection was gone, and the new regime had no love for her. Parliament made it their mission to recover every gift that had ever been made to her, her properties were stripped bare of furnishings and often reclaimed, and she was eventually rebanished. So, that is Alice Perez, the story of a common-born woman who, thanks to the infatuation of a king and her own sense of self-preservation, became the most important woman in the kingdom, possibly number two only to the king in terms of status. Her time at the top was brief, but it is extraordinary nonetheless. No mistress had ever had that much power, and none would again, probably until Anne Boleyn. It is also a timely reminder of just how dangerous female power was seen as being to the male elite. Just remember the words of Thomas Walsingham, where he claims that she, quote, "...overstepped the bounds of feminine conduct, forgetful of her sex and her weakness." These are the same words, more or less, that the guest Stefani used to cascade Empress Matilda over 200 years earlier, and it shows that attitudes towards women in power had not much changed. Next time, we're back on our bi-weekly schedule and we will be discussing Anne of Bohemia, the first wife of King Richard II, a woman of exalted birth who had a lot to do to win over a rather sceptical English public.